my son asked for a Bitcoin for his birthday. And I said, $14,000? What do you think you're going to do with $16,732? I don't have $13,000 on Butterscotch. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 2 to the 7th of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast, Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I do all kinds of webberly stuff. I'm Sam and I write words. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is December 2017. Before we get started, we have a mm-hmm. warning. Anything's going to happen on this show. Anything could and going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Anything going to happen. Yep. Anything going to happen. There's going to be profanity and weird uh, phrasings of common colloquialisms. <laughs> Beware. So uh, this show should not be listened to by chids or babbies. Mm-hmm. Or people who really like other people to speak properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're interested in talk good, yep. get, get, get the fuck get out some of other, Get some other place. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this Past week, Sam and I went to Uruguay. Yeah. We flew across the planet. Well, we flew down the planet. I mean, it's just across it still, right? Yeah, it's all relative, you know? You know what I mean, man? Yeah. It's it's down as you want it to be. Relative, yeah. Maybe we flew up the planet. Yeah. You know, maybe we've been thinking about the planet upside down this whole time. Probably. Yep. Maybe we live in the Southern Hemisphere. My favorite part about it, though, is it's the first time that I've done international travel where I didn't just stay really cold the whole time, because since we go to the other side of the planet, and Earth is this... We went Stupid to summer land. We went to the summer place. Yeah. It's great. We escaped yeah, the So you went to the bit. upside down, but it was like, it was, really beautiful. It was a good way. It was like, actually, we live in the upside down, as right. it turns out. Yeah. Which, you know, it's that's actually a pretty good, true. that's a pretty good metaphor because uh, we went there. So Uruguay is a small country. It's like three and a half million people. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot like our home state of Iowa in mm-hmm. terms of population and also kind of in terms of size. Yeah. It's, it's bigger, but. Um, but it's a pretty small country down there and, uh, they're just killing it. Yeah. They've got like this, it's like utopia thing going on. Nobody no, even knows. Nobody's uh, aware of what they're doing. Get this. I think you that's can the go only way you can have a utopia. Yeah. If, if no one knows. If nobody, nobody comes in and fucks. Well, I mean, I knew, hands. I knew it was going to be different when I went to the, to the checkout counter at the airport to get my ticket. And, and the woman's like, Oh, what's your final destination? I said, Uruguay. And she goes, Oh, it's like, what would you mean? Oh. And she goes, Oh, it's just, we get like one of those a year. I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> like we're going to some, some, some land. Neverland, you know. <laughs> the best part was, you know, we're used to in the U.S. when you have security stuff at the airports, you know, you got to basically strip naked, uh, mm-hmm. do a cavity search usually. They got they got dogs they got sniffing dogs you. Just constantly. They just turn you actually inside they out. Turn you, they turn you inside <laughs> out and it. shake the change yeah. out yep. of your organs. So yep. we, we arrive in, in, uh, in Uruguay and, and we walk through the customs. And by, I mean, walk through, I mean, basically, literally... Just you walk up and then you scan your passport and you take off your glasses. They take a picture of your face and then they're like, yeah, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> Come and, on in. Yeah. You don't look threatening. So uh, that was that was basically the extent of it, which was wonderful. Like a good entry into a country, I feel like, when you're not being harassed constantly. Yeah. So we, so we go to the experience. Yeah. So we go to the city. The city is, so they have, they have a really high uh, import tax of like 60% or something. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to get stuff from outside uh, of Uruguay. And so instead, people just start up businesses. So instead of there being like a best buy in town, mm-hmm. there's just like 50 people who have all started up little electronic shops that are just kind of scattered all around town, right? Mm-hmm. There's lots of restaurants. There's, there's not really a lot in the way of sort of major chains or big department stores. The only one we saw was one McDonald's. We McDonald's. Saw. That was the only one. Yeah. 
Um, you can't escape McDonald's. You it can't. Is. It is just everywhere. You can't get away. Um, but they have uh, super cheap healthcare with a lot of kind of like universal coverage policies. Um, they have legalized weed. Mm-hmm. So everybody there is just super happy. Just all the time. <laughs> uh, they've got all these progressive social policies. They have uh, free college for yep. for their citizens. Mm-hmm. So people are not, you know, saddled with a lifetime of student debt. Mm-hmm. People are not one medical emergency away from utter financial ruin. Seems like uh, a pretty good uh, thing they got going on. Yeah. Over and, there. and like, and they're doing all this with a GDP that is less than like the market cap of Apple. Right. Right. So it's like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> like we have all, we have all these resources. Well, I think the interesting We're thing in the upside it, down. Yeah. Nothing yeah. about it makes any sense. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about it was in just talking to people, you realize that that, that combination of systems put in place has allowed their game development scene to really start taking off in the last couple of years. It's incredible. Basically, people actually have the time and the lack of risk required to, say, put like a year into really to focusing innovate. on things. Yeah. So all the games we saw, we were like, oh, dang. I told Seth, I was like, we got we to step our shit up when we get back because we're going to get crushed by these people. year or two. So uh, it was really impressive to see. And, and also, I think it sort of spoke to, uh, I think, some of the stuff we've been trying to figure out about how to you know, get a really good dev scene going in the Midwest or just in the United States in general. And actually some of the huge now understood, I think, systemic hurdles that we have <laughs> to try yeah. to somehow overcome when you're not dealing with, say, everybody having, uh, you know, basically free healthcare and free school and no debt and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So yeah. kind well, of, yeah, a I, think, <laughs> I think when you have to use your work as the thing that, that is your security mechanism, yes. then that, that just forces you to not be able to take risks with yeah. your work. And so anytime you can escape that, now all of a sudden those things just become decoupled. Mm-hmm. And so now you can get all kinds of innovation and interesting stuff happening. Um, but yeah, it's not, not the yeah. world we live and, in. And of course all this comes with, you know, yeah. their, their national debt is as like, as a percentage of their GDP is actually very reasonable. Um, and there's like, there's just, there's nothing really, they're doing fine. They're just doing, they're just doing good shit mm-hmm. over there. I didn't even know about yeah. it. Yeah, so it was fun. It was a really good trip, and uh, I think most importantly, it seemed like we delivered some good info for like the timing of kind of where their industry is, where there's not a lot of people self-publishing. There's not a lot of people sort of uh, really effectively handling the business side of things. They can make really good games. Yeah, we should say we went down there for a conference. We didn't just sort of yeah. go there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the whole thing was just you know networking and talking to people and then, and then giving our talk, and uh, it seemed like it was a well-timed thing for kind of where they're at as a community. So it was really yeah. fun. And, and I, th- I think they have, um, the, so there are government programs that are sort of get it, helping to fund game studios, which they also have that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a fairly new thing. So they have a lot of sort of fledgling studios that are just finishing with their first game. Mm-hmm. And they're now thinking about how do you turn it into a business? How do you market? You know, all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, and of course, we've gone through that. We, yep. went, we went through that whole process, had to do all that thinking. So it was fun. Uh, what else? Do we want to say about Uruguay? Well, I mean, they have, first of all, I think I mainly want to talk about the, the the traveling aspects that have still been, are just confusing to me, which is why is it that apparently airplanes are just designed to not let you sleep? Yeah. 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 I think they're you torture know, machines. They, yeah. they appear to just be a torture machine. Yeah. If you, if you handed somebody, if you were just like, all right, I want you to design something that just absolutely crushes a person's chance to sleep comfortably for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would just, all you need is an airplane seat. Mm-hmm. And maybe, and it just like, you just need that little jostle, you know, where like every, so every 10 minutes, it's like, like there's turbulence. 
<laughs> just, just so you can't quite nod off. Yeah. yeah I was, there was like, a, there was a guy that was near us on the airplane who on the, uh, the 11 hour flight who was so tall that actually the headrest came like uh. just up to the bottom of his neck. So if he wanted to sleep, he would have to like lay his head back completely. <laughs> I was like, he has it worse than I do. Yeah. And of course his knees are like jamming into the seat in front of him. And mm-hmm. oh man, poor guy. But like, I also want to mention part of the, the crazy travel stuff was just how hilariously wrong you guys were about the trajectory. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so I <laughs> was confused because, because so Seth looked at the, the tickets like a couple days before. We and we talked podcast. about this a lot last week. Yeah. Because Seth was very amused about how we were apparently flying across the United States for most of the travel. Yeah, because yeah, what we thought, or what Seth <laughs> thought was happening was that you guys were flying to the Northwest. Washington. To Washington State. To yeah. the Northwest of the U.S. and then down to the Southeast Mm-hmm. At the, the tip of Florida. So spanning the entire longest ways path across the United States uh-huh. before actually leaving to go to. But interestingly, the timings actually. So the reason that I that I landed on that conclusion was our first ticket just said Washington. It didn't say Washington, D.C. or even like Washington, Dulles. It just said mm-hmm. Washington, which is, of course, the name of the state. Yeah. And the amount of time it takes to get there from here is the same as it takes to get to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. right? So I was like, well, we're in between. It makes yeah, sense. and I was like, well, maybe it's like a United Hub because I've had plenty of airplane trips where I've gone in literally the opposite direction of where I need to go first and then ended up going there. So it was a very reasonable assumption. So I'm like, okay, we're going to, I guess we're going to Washington. And then timing-wise, I looked at the next flight and I was like, okay, so it's it's like five hours or something like that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and so I was looking at, at different, uh, so yeah, I, lo- I looked at Panama thing. city and Panama city, Florida is about a five hour flight from state of Washington. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like well, obviously we're not going to Panama city, Panama. So you mean your, your entire data wasn't incorrect for matching this. It, it actually, just- it actually, I mean, I had a, there was a, there was a logic to it and I was like, <laughs> the obvi- geography was just, yeah, I was like, obviously we're going to Panama city cause that's how that would so, work. Yeah. The reality was we went to DC and then we went to Panama, Panama the country. and the, the airport in Panama city, Panama, it was it was like, it was insane. It was like standing room only. Like, so they, they had a, they had like eight, uh, gates in one little, they had sort of like a, a cul-de-sac of gates, you know, like, mm-hmm. so you got on a hallway, there's eight gates there and each, each gate only had like 12 seats, but these mm-hmm. are like, these are huge international flights. Yep. And so people are just standing sort of back to front, shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. for all eight of these gates. And then they would announce they would announce flights, but they would never say what flight it was for. So they would just be like, not boarding group three. And everybody <laughs> just kind of looked like, what? what? What the fuck? And then for some reason, there were 12 people dressed as Santa, just kind mm-hmm. of like just they strolling were just around. We were Do waiting as, for a, as a pack? Yeah. they were. Well, I think they were waiting for... A flight to arrive? Like I think there was something supposed to be happening. They thought they were going to do something, but they never did. Um, but yeah, and it was it was insanely hot because of just how many people were crammed mm-hmm. together, you know. Uh, so that was so we got we got really just real sweaty right before that big long flight to mm-hmm. Uruguay. So. That's the best, you know. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, so traveling, international travel, it's always an adventure. Sam got to use his uh, his Spanish quite a lot, so he carried yeah. the day on on translation. Mm-hmm. Which way. was a lot of fun. And mainly I found that if you, as long as you just show that you're trying and then also that you're terrible, people are usually very kind and patient. Yeah. Like, Cause a lot oh, of it's so dumb. We'll take care yeah, of it. A lot of it was people, a lot of people in Uruguay do speak English, but they don't use it a lot. Right. Cause there's not a lot of English speakers that come there. And so, uh, so they can do it, but they're just not very comfortable about it. Mm-hmm. So then, so Sam would come in and he would like th- throw some awkward Spanish words out there and then they'd be like, Oh, okay. So I guess this is fine. 
I can throw some of my shitty English mm-hmm. out there. And then like, it's like, a, it it's like a shitty language teamwork mm-hmm. situation. Well, the funny thing is, it was actually a lot of fun because it made every interaction feel kind of like a, almost like a cooperative puzzle game. It was like right. a trust fall. It was <laughs> yeah. like a team building exercise. So it actually had a really warm sort of overall feeling to it. More so than just like if you go to the store and you're like, can I get some chips? You know, it's like, it's not the same thing where I went up to, I bought some bananas and went up to the register and I just handed her my banana. I say hello and, and uh, it's Spanish and, and then uh, hand her my bananas. And then she's just like launches into this, uh, like basically telling me what I need to do to, to actually pay for the bananas. But of course I have no idea what the fuck she said. <laughs> and so I was like, uh, um, it's so I, I say something back in Spanish, basically saying like, can you, can you slow down a little bit? And she's like, ah, and then she just walks me over to the banana stand where they have them all like broken out in, in twos. You buy bananas in twos. Ah, okay. Uh, and then you have to like, you actually have to weigh them and then get a sticker and, and then you bring them there. the sticker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she like walks me through this whole thing. We do it. Uh, but it ends up being a way more warm interaction than, of course, if you're. It requires a lot of good faith. It does, right? Yeah. Right. So it was it was a very nice experience overall, I think, despite the. But then, of course, afterwards, you were just like, "Why don't they just pre-weigh them?" Yeah, that was real confusing because <laughs> they're already in pairs. It's right there. I'm like, you could just remove a part of this. Yeah. Hole. So there's some mm-hmm. kind of interesting like, cultural thing. I was like, that's just how you sell bananas. What you know? <laughs> uh, but how was it being? Because uh, Adam was here with the rest of the team, so it mm-hmm. was like a, you know. I think Seth and I are mainly the ones who end up having the most collaborative stuff go down in terms of yeah. our interactions with everybody else well, in the studio. It's that, but it's also that uh, all of our business decisions are made collaboratively, collaboratively as a group, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when when you guys were both gone and incommunicado, then that it meant that I didn't, I just didn't have the option of making business decisions. Which, you just got to work. Which is beautiful because then I could just work on stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So it actually, it was interesting because it just took, it took administration off the table. Mm. So it wasn't that, it wasn't that you guys generate it. It's that it can only be done when all of us are mm. here. But right? what does this mean? Because you said it was a great work. Yeah. Because, because it was a fantastic yeah, work. So, work. so really that, what is, does this mean that can we not? Mm. I mean, <laughs> I think, I think it means can we, well, and, and I don't know. I got to, we need to, we need to think, we need to think about this. it some more, but but I think one of the things that I, that I was thinking about, and it is especially along the lines of the fact that, that we believe that most of the things that we do don't actually matter. Correct. Yeah. But despite <laughs> that, we still work really hard to make sure we're doing all the things that we think we should be doing. Um, and I think maybe we just can do less. Just, just do fewer do less. Things. Yeah. You know? So, so I, was, I was, there's a book that I've, that I've been reading. I started reading on the airplane. It's called Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, the history of the game industry. And it's just a very dense compendium starting back in the 1950s even mm-hmm. of the first video game which was like a tic-tac-toe computer that just had like lights on it um all the way up to uh up to like you know modern stuff i'm 40 percent of the way through it it's like a 30 hour read because it's it's not like a it's not like it's not meant to be an engaging story it's just like here's what happened it's just a report for like 700 pages or something yeah it? Uh, yeah. I think it's about 900 pages. Yeah. So I'm about 40% of the way through after two extremely long international <laughs> flights. Um, and so one thing I noticed was really interesting was how all these companies, like during the, the dawn of the, the home video game console, mm-hmm. there's like a 20 year period where there were just hundreds of consoles uh, and everybody was trying to come up with some new angle. And they'd be like, this one has a printer, you know, or like this one has like a keyboard and you can plug a cartridge in there. You can program your own games. Mm-hmm. We don't have the technology to save that code yet, but you can <laughs> right. program them, right? And so every every console would come out with some new twist where they were trying to like bring in people with other divergent interests. Mm-hmm. 
And the only ones that actually came out alive were the ones that were just like, this plays video games really good. Like that was their whole yep, right. angle and all these, and they did, they just didn't worry about dumping tons of resources into expanding all these extra features that nobody actually gave a shit about or understood. And they just did one thing really, really well. And that was just their whole thing. So it's probably true. Mm-hmm. Like doing all this. Do less. We could just I think do we could do less. Well, and I think it's, if it is true that things don't matter that much right. most of the time, which, which is a good thing. It means that, it means that things are fairly robust to chaos, but we've, we've sort of, we've designed everything to be that way. So we've stayed very small as a team. Uh, we operate on a cash pile basis. So we're not mm-hmm. always at the very end of our runway. So we just have lots of time to work on stuff or to have finished a thing before we launch a new product. So, so we've got, we've got everything we need where, where if things happen and if we do something wrong, we can recover from it mm-hmm. unless we do something really dumb, uh, which means we probably just don't need to worry about stuff that much. And we also learned a few weeks ago that we had started marketing too early, mm-hmm. uh, but we're still worrying about it a lot. And so we're still like, we're, we're worried about like marketing the podcast. We're worried about marketing mm-hmm. the merch shop. We're worried about marketing all these things. And we've, and we spent actually, I was thinking back on, we spent a lot of time talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the outcome has always been the same, which is that nothing matters. Marketing didn't work. Well, not only that, yeah. but like so far, the best the best thing we've been able to do for the podcast. So we did we is tried launch to, a game. Is launch a game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, meh, there, now we have podcasts. Let's <laughs> do it. But it was also the best thing we did for the company because that, that was what brought us all of our business opportunities. That was what allowed us to give sure all the work that we've given him of now porting to yeah. everything in the universe and all that stuff. Well, there is, you know, in, so in, in game theory, overall, there's this idea of a dominant strategy. Wait, wait, game theory, a theory about games or the game theory game from theory the mathematical like sense? Economics and mathematics. Okay. Which is that most games, so most sort of things that have a rule structure to them, eventually have a dominant strategy that you can just figure out, right? Yeah. And as a game designer, this is really annoying because in, in a game where, for example, I think Dead Cells, uh, which we talked about a while ago, Metroidvania, where it's a uh, super hard and it's kind of Dark Souls like, uh, they had this problem where they made all these sweet weapons, and then but because the game is a roguelike, where when you die you die, uh, you have to restart. People, of course, would just pick up a bow and then stand as far away from things as possible, and just like <laughs> right, away, just right? Because die. as a dominant strategy, it's fantastic because yeah. you you avoid possibly taking damage, you kill people, right. it's great. But it takes out all the really great parts of the gameplay, right? So yeah. the interesting thing then, as a studio, is it might just be that our dominant strategy should just be. 100% devoted to uh, driving that spear tip of a new game into the market, right? right. Or new content into the market. Right. And just and not even... Don't, just don't even worry about the other stuff. Just until, say everything else comes from this. Yeah. yeah. So this, this is something we've been actually talking about sort of internally uh, over the past few weeks is, you know, Scuffle Buddies is a huge project. It's very mm-hmm. big. It's going to take quite a, a long time. And back during Crashlands, uh, one of the biggest things that we did to make Crashlands successful was launch Flop Rocket. Mm-hmm. Yep, which got us forty thousand B Sketch ID users, and then we were able to roll that into our Greenlight campaign, mm-hmm. and then use that to curate right. our beta so, testers. So, so if we did literally no marketing and then just made a little a small game in a few months, that's right? our marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Then, and because, then we just, and then, but then we don't even market that; we just launch it, yep. right? We still talk to our people, all the people, all the, you know, platform holders. Yeah, we, we try to get it featured. Try to get yeah. it featured, but otherwise we use featuring of another of a different game as our window into marketing the one. next game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and then and then all we do is make games, and we don't have to do all this other stuff as as much. Well, I, I, I still think there's a, there's a tremendous value in like the bigger game concepts being having a slow burn marketing. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah. I think there is something there. I think, yeah. but I think the the amount of we put in too much time with the last one. Yes, with the yeah. last, one. <laughs> but, no, the but, output, but even yeah. in general, just like because we because not just time doing it, but it's also a lot of time 
thinking about it and talking about it, trying different strategies and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, and, and you're saying, fuck it. Well, even, even all this yeah, stuff about, I think, about trying to optimize our newsletter campaigns and yeah. all this stuff. I mean, we just need to make fucking awesome games, get them out there fairly regularly. And then the people, and then as people go find and play them and then join our stuff so they start getting our newsletter, then they'll like them or they won't. They'll like them or they won't, you know, and like if we could try to do strategies to boost our open rate by 1.3%. Yeah. But if we make a new game, we don't have to give a fuck about trying to squeeze an extra 100 people. Because right. <laughs> right. now we have 100,000 yeah. more people we're right. sending an email to. Right. Right. So clearly this is the dominant strategy. Just is make, to launch new just games. Just launch games. Right. Okay. But, but you can't do it we, too fast. No, you can't. But, but we can't anyway because it's impossible. So I know it is. It's, it's possible. We've done we it did too it. Fast. Oh, to Remember? launch too fast. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. we made a. There was a five week period where we made a game every Monday. Yep. And the first one got featured on no, no, Google. No, When I'm saying we can't, I mean the kinds of games we want to make now. Right. So we weeks. we can't make every week. Correct. Yes. But we they, could you know. make them in a month or two. Yeah. Depending. Yeah. Well, not. Well, I guess yeah. Depending but on the just kinds a of smallie, games we make. Small, small guy. Small games. Just a little a little game. You know, bring yeah. Narwhal Online back. You know, just wrap up. Yeah. We're almost done with it, anyways. That's it's true, secret, but it's true. Now, That's true. We I did. We you. did spend like three weeks working on a new on a new narwhal online. Yeah, it's pretty sweet looking. Wait, wait. We did actually. We were working on this? two. Games. No, two weeks. Yeah, because we we started working on. I can't remember if we were told the people the name of the other game. Did we? Snappers. Did we tell people that? Yeah, no. So. Okay. We did. We did. Yeah. Well, it's Whippersnappers. Okay. It was. <laughs> so we, we it's were, dead now, but it was. We were working on Whippersnappers, which we did or did not tell people, mm-hmm. uh, and then that. That uh, we took a break to basically make because we were like, oh shit, this is gonna be a big game. So let's, let's we need make to make a, a small game. Let's make a small game. And so like that's what we're, we're talking about right now. Right. Yeah. So that's when we stopped when we worked on the remake of Narwhal Online, which mm-hmm. I think we we were two weeks in, and then we did the Shenanah Jam, right. which gave birth to Scuff Boys. I'm like, oh, this that's is fucking right. awesome. Yeah. So then we did this screw instead. this Narwhal stuff. So that actually screw all the things. But interestingly, Scuffle Buddies was intended to be a small game. Yeah. But then we were like, this has a lot of legs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll just go ahead and ditch that last fucking. <laughs> pile of garbage we were working on and we'll work on scuffle buddies. But this is, this is the risk with uh, with a small project is that it's hard. It's actually just hard to make a small project that's both viable yes. um, and that won't get out of scope and turn into a big project because you, once you see the promise in it and mm-hmm. it becomes a viable thing, then of course now you want to maximize the yep. the, well, vi- the viableness and the awesomeness. And this, and this is difficult given our um, shift toward premium. You know, it's it feels fine to make a really small project and put it up for free. You know, mm-hmm. with some like half cocked monetization scheme or whatever, because mm-hmm. uh, it's free. So you know the expectations aren't that high. But once we want to charge a few bucks for it, then the pressure on what we put on ourselves to actually yep. make it yep. a huge thing really goes up. But it might just be the case that that pressure is is dumb yeah. because we know, for example, that our our premium price on mobiles is what we would call suppressed. Compared to the value, you could call it that. You're talking about paying five, <laughs> paying five bucks seven or seven bucks. bucks to get a uh, forty to sixty hour, you know, that's cheaper than a movie, monster game, which is ninety minutes long. Well, the whole point though is that people don't care about comparisons, right? Uh-huh. But um, but it might just be the case that we like there. There's plenty of games that launch on on the stores that are one or two bucks that are mm-hmm. actually really small. I mean, Monument it's Valley great. is like. 45 minutes long. Yeah, it's you know, three, <laughs> three bucks or something like that. Uh, yeah. Four or yeah, five. Something. Yeah. And there's an expansion. It's like an extra few bucks and there's mm-hmm. another 45 minutes. Yeah, so I, mean, I think the thing is we can, I, we tend to put undue pressure on ourselves to, I think, over deliver when it comes to the fact that we are a premium yeah. game studio, but I think it's just about the mindset. Yeah, and I think, I think our, I think our listeners, which I think people should, you know, write us, write us, we have an email address at podcast at Uh Tell us what you think about this, you know, like, would you guys rather us just solely make a huge game 
and put it out there every like two years or have that huge game take a little bit longer, like like six months yeah, longer. half a year probably. But then get like two extra games in the meantime. Yeah. Or three. Smaller right? in scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smaller, yeah. That, but that are still, you know, still fun. polished, fun uh, things that we can just kind of roll together. So, yeah, I, I think I think it seems fine. Seems like a good strategy. Well, and I do think, and we talked about this a bit in the past too. I think I think there's something to be said for just as a studio, because a studio is a machine that makes and sells games, right? Mm-hmm. And and in our case, because we're doing it fully independently, that means we're also the publisher, uh, and so we do all the marketing, we do all the stuff. Um, so if we only do the whole thing, every aspect of it, every two or three years. We're going to get yeah, bad at yeah, it. Yeah, we're going to be yeah, bad right. at it every fucking time we <laughs> right. do it. But if we can actually kind of warm up the machine and learn some things, mm-hmm. make some mistakes in the interim on smaller projects, which is really what we did up through up before Crashlands. Mm-hmm. Yep. We learned an enormous amount by launching all the other games that we launched. Then we launched Crashlands with all of those lessons, learned a bunch of lessons from Crashlands that we're now applying to the next thing. Uh, and if we actually just have the more opportunities to do that, then that's probably just some would say a dominant so, so should our listeners yeah. expect a new game say next week nope nope next, so before next week that's a little too fast <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> well, we should, well, but i think uh because with with the new bscotch id is is now well underway the kind of the core components of it can are, we say what it's called uh i don't know can we should we yeah let's do it why not do it so we were, we were originally calling it bscotch id 2 because it's actually just a totally new thing mm-hmm. yeah but that's too dumb yeah, well, and also we never really, we never really liked the name Beast ID in the first place. It was just, it was fast. It was just what we had. It was fast, and and the name that Sam really wanted, I just hated, and so we which both, was molasses, which was molasses, molasses. which I just yeah, because that way, well, you know, you get stuck in it, and it's delicious. But then also, uh, whenever it's, it's slow. <laughs> People are like, this is slow as molasses. Which seems to be a naming strategy because then we have crash lands. So I know. Every time it crashes, we can be like, well, it's well I mean, yeah, land. what did you expect? I thought it was hilarious. I even made a logo <laughs> for it and an icon stuff. Adam's like, no. I just, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, so the new one. Yeah. So the new one now is named Ruckus, mm-hmm. which has then been it's very kind of fun. like a, It's like a rowdy crowd, basically. Yeah. Which has been fun because now we can talk about, we're, you know, we're making a ruckus over here. And, yep. you know, so it, it adds kind of a fun... Uh, lingo to it, but but the idea of this new system is that it's it's it is completely new. We're gonna try to pull legacy Bscotch ID data into, into it and stuff, but we're gonna try to. Uh, but it's gonna be we're gonna hard. we're gonna do what we can. My my bet is we'll be able to get the important stuff. Um, and and then otherwise we're gonna actually gonna keep legacy Bscotch ID running mm-hmm. because we don't want to have to go through the process of like taking everything that exists there uh, and porting it over to this new thing. We want to be able to just say, okay, we got that old thing, but now we have this new thing that's way right. better, and, and now we're gonna be using that moving forward. Um, but we've, we've got the kind of core components of that now are done. There's a few more pieces that I want to put together that will kind of flesh out giving us so that we can do whatever we want when it comes to making games. And as soon as we have that, the, it'll be so easy for us just to be like, we want to make a game that has this Weird. web component. Yeah. We can just now yeah. do that. And so, yeah. The, the reason for the change was that the, the original Beastcatch ID, everything was really hard coded and all the games needed to have the same set of parameters. So, so we had, uh, friends, leaderboards, yep. Uh, achievements, mm-hmm. which turned into perks. And everything was handled exactly the same way. Everything's handled the exact same way, except for cloud saving, which was handled, which was completely, handled completely uniquely. Completely uniquely for every game hard-coded. Yep. Which, which is dumb. Which made the best feature of Bsketch ID, the cloud saving, uh, the, hardest. the hardest thing to implement. Absolutely. And everything else was really inflexible. So if we were like, we want to have the ability to, like, you know, maybe in Flop Rocket, like I want to challenge a friend to a, mm-hmm. a mission, like, or something. Well, now we got to hard code that whole thing from the ground up. 
on the server and on the game side yep. because there's no mechanism to handle that. And so it really constrained our ability to create a vision for a, a game that had some kind of cool online feature that we would want to do. Yeah. So not and anymore. It, and it made it difficult just to to add web features in general to to a game we were working on so that so that if Sam and Seth are working on a game, they say, ooh, I want to I put a level editor in here, mm-hmm. right? There was no way I'd have to be like, well, fuck, I have to figure out how to store all that level data right. on the internet and like, and you know, and figure all that out. When really it should just be, the game should be figuring out how to store. Yeah, there should just data. be a generic web system you can talk to that does that. So, so that's what we've, we've made, which is going to allow us to do these things, like make these small games with cool, interesting features and just I think the reality too, out. as a team, is that it's just fun to have launched more games. Oh yeah. As just, well, that's just also, that's fact. where all of our credibility comes yeah. from. Right. All of it comes from game launches. Yeah. Yeah, because actually 2017 will be the first year in the studio's history that we haven't launched a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel dirty. Yeah. I just feel So we gotta, hideous. we're going to have to swing the pendulum the other way. Cause well, and the means- prior game launch was the f- second January. month of January the prior year. Yep. Yeah. So, so it's, it's been, it will have been, almost, been two this, years. This January will have been two years. Yeah. So that's just too long. <laughs> we need to, all right. I'm getting itchy. Yeah. So we'll right. probably have to do that. But yeah, so let's do that. So, so to bring it all back then. We've been spending a lot of time, you know, working really hard about these extra opportunities with marketing things with, and we've been doing a lot of business expansion, which is stuff that we still need to be doing, but we've probably, we've probably just, we've probably just been working on it way too hard, actually. Mm -hmm. Because there are all these questions that have come up where, you know, we're really worried about certain kinds of consequences of, of things that we do, when the question should actually be, could the consequence nuke the studio? And if the answer is no, we could probably just be like, right, let's give that a shot. Universally no, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And And does it seem like... Well, Does that seem also- likely to have a really good outcome? And if the answer is also no, then we say, okay, then just ignore that for the rest of time now. Yeah. Uh, so we now, we just, for, which we actually, we'd been doing, but could probably do a little more aggressively. Mm-hmm. So we cut out just even more stuff and then reduce the amount of time we have to spend deciding whether or not to do things based, we just need to basically, we need better heuristics. Yep. So we don't have to rehash stuff and like think through yeah. all the logical components. Yeah, this, this is the kind of, this is, Back when we uh, launched Quadruplets Rampage, we actually fell into a similar trap, but for a, a shorter period of time, which was Quadruplets Rampage came out. We had like 800,000 players in the first few weeks, which was unfathomable to mm-hmm. us because Towel Fight 2 only sold 1,500 copies. Yep. yep. Uh, so we're just like, oh, we have so many players. We have to do right by these players and like they're expecting more content and like maybe we can like tweak this thing to get a little mm-hmm. bit more revenue out of the game. And maybe if we do this... And so we spent we spent uh, ten weeks making the game, and then after that we spent like eight weeks patching it, right? Yep. And so, uh, and we kept trying to come up with ways to add content to the game stuff. And almost everything we did didn't matter or actually made things worse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only thing that we did that actually both improved the game and improved our uh, income was adding pets to the game, which really was a big it was a big enough content change to the game overall that it was I mean, it was essentially. It's heavily modified how it's you just a whole new the game, game system. Yeah. yeah. But like, like all this tweaking and stuff we tried to do. And then later, much later, I think six months after the game came out, we put ads in there, which doubled our revenue. Yeah. That was, um, that was a although, good call at the time. You know, at the cost of sort of our souls. Right. Sure. So, and too late for it to really matter. That and too much. late for it to really matter. <laughs> yeah. It, it doubled all of our forward revenue, which at that point was such a tiny trickle that it basically didn't matter. Yep. Yep. So, but the point being, uh, had we just, so we, we knew we could make a game in 10 weeks, you know, had we taken the eight weeks after Quadrupus and just made a whole, other game, yeah, we would have way more than doubled our revenue, right? And like, and not only that, but launching a new game removes the possibility of you, for example, accidentally cutting your revenue in half on another game. 
because you're not changing that game. It's just doing it's just doing its yeah, own thing, sure. right? Yep. Unless you launch a sequel that somehow makes it obsolete right. or something. Yep. Well, this is one of those questions we've just gone back and forth about a lot, which is when do you stop working on it? Yeah. When do you stop? When do you start? Uh, how do you know something's done? How big of a thing should be doing? All mm-hmm. this stuff. Well, the only reason this is a question is because on a small team, yeah, you don't have enough resources. You have to choose one or the other. Right. You can't. You can't. So people. Are, but you know, I mean, on a big team, you also do. I think. I think it's. It's actually the reason that big teams get into trouble. Yes, because they think the extra bandwidth means they should be doing all this. Yeah, but actually, all that means is they're just burning more money. Probably. Right. And actually they're much more fragile because now you have, because now you're just spread out. So you're, you're putting now a lot of resources into stuff and it's, and it's still the case that most things are going to on average just kind of be fine. Mm-hmm. Right. So now you have a whole bunch of things that are all just kind of doing fine, which then you might as well not even have because yeah. they're not actually, they're not contributing meaningfully, right. but now if something bad happens. So now you're increasing the chance that one of those things goes real wrong, right? Cause, Cause you're, you're just rolling more dice. Yeah. yeah. And so if the thing goes really wrong, then, cause I, it, the, the, the problem with things going wrong is that if it goes wrong enough, there's no recovery from it, right? Mm-hmm. If it goes right enough, like there, you can just keep on pushing that forward. Nothing, nothing, nothing actually stops by things going well. But by things going poorly, if they go poorly enough, then it's just game over. And the larger you are, the mm. easier it is actually for things to go really poorly because you've become a bigger target. You're moving more resources around. It only takes one bad actor, somebody with bad faith in your company or just somebody making a really big mistake um, to completely implode something, actually. Well, and this is this is even, there are even things you can do that seem like they're unrelated or that they can't have a negative consequence when you're working on an yeah. existing product, and it totally can. And we, we experienced this with our mm-hmm. uh, Chinese Crashlands launch. Yep. Because we put the game out in China uh, on the Wii game platform with the Chinese translation, and all of a sudden our Steam review score for Crashlands plummeted. Mm-hmm. Down to like fifty or sixty yeah. percent, right? Like we're like we're pushing the negative reviews. We're like, what is happening? Turns out that there were uh, at least a, a sizable enough proportion of Chinese players who had the game already, and they wanted the Chinese on translation. Steam. Yeah, they wanted the Chinese translation on the platform which they had already bought the game mm-hmm. on, which we hadn't even considered. So all of a sudden, now we're coming into the holiday season with a nearly negative review score. Yeah. And because because we a, on one platform, because we launched on a different platform, which we thought would be an isolated, like, mm-hmm. oh, people are going to be excited to have this. It was thing. also one of those things. This is one of the first times we've actually seen a dip in revenue on a platform. Yeah. It was actually, and it's been be- strictly because of this thing where suddenly our, our review score is mixed. And of course, what do people do on Steam? You see mixed review score. You're like, nah. Yeah. You choose one of the other <laughs> 6,000 games. Yeah. yeah. So this has been one of the only problems we've had actually in the studio's history in terms of maintaining our tail was the fact that we launched on another platform, which was supposed to completely sort of push that tail up. Well, and of course we offset that with the launch revenue from correct the China launch. Yeah, we're still but, doing fine, but. So we're still, yeah. So the thing is, it shouldn't is that be that you cannibalize a tail. Yeah, right? it shouldn't be that you cannibalize a tail. And it shouldn't be that doing one good thing causes some other bad thing to happen and things just balance out. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the more things you do, because it, this is all random. We're just, we're just rolling dice here, yep. right? Uh, on average, your dice rolls are average, right? So by doing more things, you don't do better. You just mm-hmm. keep, you just do average more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and if you, and, but you're, you're now just increasing the, the number of things that you have to pay attention to. You're increasing the number of things that can go wrong. Mm. Um, so I think, I think it's actually something to consider just scaling back the things. I'm down. You know, fewer things just all around and just asking, because we, we've always been focusing on what's high leverage um, and just asking like, does this seem like we're going to get a lot out of this? Um, but we should probably also just be asking, should we even just do another thing? Mm-hmm. Even if right. it even if it actually may be high level, well, even if it might just, bring in significant revenue to the company, yeah. 
at at what cost? Because it's going to increase administrative burden. It's going to do all these other things. Well, just the chat that said that I happened this morning before work even started was basically like, you know, we like the last Crashlands patch we put out was last December. So Crashlands hasn't even had like a major content update mm-hmm. for a year now. Yep. Um, and that was one of the questions we were asking because we've never actually gotten to answer that, you know, that effective question of, okay, if you keep on putting some time into a thing and growing it a bit bigger and bigger and bigger, um, what does that mean for the game? How does that actually work in the long run? Right. Is that a good call? And there's this question of if we have the extra bandwidth on the programming side, should it actually be put into platform expansion or instead into simply content, content expansion for a game that already is success- successful? Right. Yeah. And our prior belief was that there's nothing more important than a launch, which mm-hmm. I think I still believe in general. Uh, so that going to new platforms is effectively a new launch. Therefore, that's always the best move. Mm-hmm. But that may not actually be. But that may not be true. It, because it, there's costs. So well, there's more costs cost associated with new platforms than there are with right. new content. And it's an old right. game. Right. And it's yep. an old game. And so it turns out the platforms are le- become less and less interested in your old game over right. time. So And so do the players. And so do the players. And and probably you've already launched on the biggest platforms anyway. Right. So so now you're you're just like picking up little platforms here and there. So now you're you're increasing all of your dev costs, you're increasing all, all of your administrative costs, you're increasing a whole bunch of stuff uh, at the benefit of actually a fairly minor improvement to your revenue, which is could easily be offset just by the increased costs of having that in the first place. So perhaps the policy should be pick your best platforms, launch onto them, and then make another game. And make another game. Or yeah, or <laughs> if you do want to keep on supporting a game. So I, I finished reading uh, the book Masters of Doom uh, mm-hmm. on the trip which is awesome. It's about id software and their sort of rise and fall. And uh, it was really interesting because what they would do is basically they had a guy who built the engine, right? Because they didn't have an engine that was just laying around for them to use. That's so, not how it used to work. Yeah, so someone had to actually build it. And so what, what would happen is this guy would build this thing and then uh, the designer would essentially come in and get really excited about the tech and be like, oh, here's how we're going to use this, right? And then they build the game for you know six months, 12 months, whatever, and launch it. And then the engine guy would just disappear again. So he would just Come go into a cave engine. and start building the next <laughs> I made version this. of this thing. Right. And then while he was doing that, the whole rest of the team built new content for the game. So they would launch like level packs or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Just sort of as, it's not just a way to like buy time per se, but it was really a really effective way to keep their their player base going and like all this yeah. other stuff, right? Because if you think about even stuff like our merch store, if it were the case that we were actually doing enough content updates to sort of keep people coming back to Crashlands over the last year and a half. Yeah. And then we launched the merch store we could probably have a lot more right. going on in that department. But instead we launched it deep, deep, deep in the tail. In an unsupported game, game tail, yeah. which is the most important piece. So yep. it, it sort of like cut our ability to really, I think, make a lot of high leverage out of some of the other stuff that we were doing with it. Well, but importantly, right. we, we could have been supporting the game in terms of content patches. We put all of our eggs into going to new platforms, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, so we launched the game in China, which has a mixed result yeah, right like we get some money over here we lose some money over here <laughs> right we, we lose yeah. reviews like all these things but uh it's still i think a net positive but yeah it was, it's a net positive but not not to the scale at which we were yeah hoping it might be yeah so we might have some we might have some strategic changes on the horizon it sounds like the horizon yeah. meaning right now right. yeah but, th- but this is actually <laughs> an interesting point because this is one of the things i was thinking about as well which is just how much uh we've been dependent on and i think I think on the whole, it's still a good thing. The question is maybe we can scale some of that back too. But how much we've been dependent on the collaborative aspect of what we're working on versus letting people go off in caves and then just come back and be like, this is what we have now, right? Because if you think about, think back to Scotch ID, the original one, mm-hmm. uh, we basically just said, we need a way to have users, right? I was like, cool, I'll go learn how to do that. And then I, I basically just did it and I said, here's what I got, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time, that was because that was the best I could do was just that thing that I had made. 
And was, this is actually true of like your art, like Sam's art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you just be like, this is what I got now. There, there was not an opportunity for, for collaboration. Like, well, what if it was like this instead? It was like, nope, this is what it is. Right. And so we actually, yeah, let's just think about how we were going to use it. Right. Exactly. So now, now you have, now it. you make a thing yeah. and then you figure out how to use it. And when it, so when it comes to, to the game design for scuffle buddies, um, cause there's a lot of collaboration involved, which of course is good. And that feeds the thing into it. But there's a question here of at what point does it make sense for just Sam to go off and like make a story and a fuck ton of art assets or right. whatever. And at what point does it make sense for Seth to go off and just be like, I implemented all of these weird systems that I think you could probably find a way to use. Right. Because uh, I was also thinking about this over the weekend and I, over last week when I was just by myself working on Ruckus, mm-hmm. newbie sketch ID. Because I got this these really cool weird systems I'm putting together. I realized as Seth and I had had hooked up achievements using this system, uh, which I hadn't even thought was a thing we could do. Um, but Seth was like, "What if we just did it, did it for this?" And I was like, "Sure, I don't see mm-hmm. why not." Right? And realizing that just by providing a tool that I had an idea for how that could be used without actually talking to anybody about it. Mm-hmm. I just fucking made that thing because it sounded useful, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, so it's like, ooh, we could start using it for this, this, well, and this. this, this and then whole... that spun out new ideas for me to go yeah. back and make new things that I know will actually be better for that, which will open yeah, new doors, right. and so on. Well, yeah. this is the engine guy approach, right? Like the yeah. engine guy appears, and he's like, here's this tool. And then right. if you have the right people in the room, then they get excited about the possibility, yeah. right, of what you can do. And with they it. just ask, what can I do with this, yeah. right? Uh, and and now it it creates both a set of tools and a set of constraints that that get used mm-hmm. moving forward. Um, and I think so. I, I am curious how much of a kind of a, especially the past year in particular has been us sort of trying to optimize stuff by yeah. But really, we just need to do stuff. Just we need to do stuff. And yeah, because yeah, it, it's sort of the it's that like we're talking about the newsletter thing, right? Like you could you could spend weeks debating how to best optimize your newsletter strategy. But literally nothing is better than just having a million more newsletter users, yeah. <laughs> which is what happens when you launch a game right. or whatever, right? right. As far so, as your bottom line goes. Yeah. Right. So, yep. so really the answer should be, we don't even, we don't need to talk about this. Let's just make, <laughs> let's right. just make a fucking thing. Right? Right. <laughs> yep. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, don't go for 1% gains. Go for 300% gains, yeah. which you can never do by just tweaking things, right? right? Like it, that's, it, that comes from building. Right. And that, and that, and that comes back to the idea that when you get into a bigger, bigger companies, now all of a sudden there's all this min maxing happening because people are trying to squeeze out every right. last dollar. And it's, and it's because if they don't, like they, they can get buried quickly because their costs are so fucking high. Well, it's also their costs are high because they have to bring in so many people to min max so many. Yeah, guys. exactly. <laughs> well, but it's also one of those things where the reality is that if you're making like 1% extra on a billion dollar Oh yeah, product, that's a lot of money. A huge amount of money. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Versus yeah, but still, a hundred percent extra is even more. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, like if you take if you take like uh, like say Supercell or something, right? Sure. Who undoubtedly has an entire team of people whose whose job it is to min max how much money their players pay them. Mm-hmm. If you and I imagine that team is enormously costly to mm-hmm. run. Um, sure, they also bring in probably a lot of revenue. But what if instead of hiring that team, you hired a team that just made another game mm-hmm. instead? Yep. It seems that would be much more effective, right? It really? seems to be. <laughs> it seems like it would be. And, and especially because the, big, it, the biggest thing for them ever since uh, Clash of Clans was Clash Royale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that was their biggest And that thing. will continue to be true. And, and I think, but I think part of here is, is there's actually an interesting risk problem because every time you make a new game, that's actually a new risk because you have no idea if it's going to pay off. Right. But so, so people start to invest. And I think this is what we found ourselves doing as well. You start to invest in the things that you're trying to, pull the money out of the thing that did work, right? Like mm-hmm. get as much out of there as you can because that's your security. That's your stable yep, source security of blanket. Right. Uh, and, but as you start putting all your resources there, then actually the risk of your next launch becomes higher and higher and higher because now instead of you hiring a team of people to make a new game, 
over this over this you know year long period, you instead pull as much money as you can out of the existing game. So now you have one fewer games you get to launch. Because well, if you had just made that one game and it failed, you'd mm-hmm. still be doing fine. It's kind of like fracking, right? I mean, like, you're getting a little more out of it, but maybe you're destroying the ground. Maybe, you, can, maybe exactly. you can't drink anything exactly. now, and your sink catches <laughs> on fire. I think, I think it's like, <laughs> even, even a large company truly does face uh, these um, the, the, the cost issue that they, just, they still have an opportunity to cost with everything that they do. Mm-hmm. It just feels like they don't. Right. Because they have so much money, and they're spending it all these places. Like, ooh, I want to do this now, so they go do a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is they, they, they scale to match the income. Yep. They always do. Yep. And so it doesn't actually. Yeah. And in, in reading about this matter. like history of the games industry, the amount of weird shit that all these companies were trying to do, especially in the, the eighties. Yeah. Because like the, it was the dawn of the personal computer age and all these video game developers, they know about computers, of course, mm-hmm. but the average person in the world is like, what the fuck is a computer? Right. <laughs> yeah. And what would I possibly need it for? Mm-hmm. I have a pen and a paper, so yep. What? <laughs> uh, and so all these game manufacturers kept trying to find ways to turn their video game consoles into computers, and they would ship them with these really awkward keyboards with like mm-hmm. those shitty like rubber keys that you'd like push really hard on, you know, with no standardized QWERTY layouts because like keyboards were oh, still yeah, kind of taking yet. shape. Um, and uh, or they would release like one of them was like it had like a, a, a numpad. Like, so it was, like, it was like 12 keys and you were supposed to be able to program games with it. Like <laughs> it was just, it was just like 12 numbers and you did it bitwise, like with binary code. Right. Yep. Um, and so like they, they promoted the shit out of it and like, oh yeah, it's like got this cartridge you put in here. And then like you poke these numbers on here to like do bit operations to make games. Mm-hmm. Nobody understood it. It failed dramatically, you know, <laughs> well, uh, but they only did it because they had extra money thinking we need to tap into a new market. Well, I mean, I think, I think there's, I think it really comes down to on a psychological level, more like what Adam was talking about, which is businesses are still human run entities at the end right. of the day. And the reality is that we, while we tend to thrive better in an insecure situation, basically everybody does like the whole idea of if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing or, you know, like the hard things are hard for a reason, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very true. Most, if you remember most of the most important moments in your life, for example, they tend to be the shitty stuff where you sort of had to go through a thing or whatever else. The things that make you grow are the hard things. So, but the reality is we always seek the security. Yeah. Right. Cause it feels there, better. But there's an important <laughs> consequence. I was, I've been re-listening to anti or I guess continue to listen to anti-fragile, that book we talked mm-hmm. about a while ago. Uh, and, and he was talking about this recently. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of on my mind too, but, but there's this consequence of, of all of this, uh, which is that if you're, if you're looking for security and you're looking for kind of main, maintaining and, you know, and sticking with the things that are working and so on, then what you're going to be doing is focusing on efficiency and optimization, yes, right? right? And both of those things actually are are bad in the long term. Uh, so they have some good parts, but mm-hmm. the, the bad thing they do is the only way to optimize something or to make something efficient is to double down on the thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Because you, can, you can't make a general optimization. You can't make something generally efficient. You can make a very specific thing very efficient or very optimized. And so now you basically double down on a thing. And the moment something deviates, that's it's no longer optimal. Right. The moment anything in the environment deviates, sure. so because you're running a business in a specific scenario, right. and so yeah. if you're running a business and you, and you adapt that business to perfectly match the the market that it lives in, right? So say say like mm. say take take like go go back to the the games that were launching on mobile back when mobile first became a thing, right? right? 
almost all the companies that were there, and some of some of whom did v- spectacularly well at that time, they have no collapsed longer, together, yeah, no right? longer around. Because the market changed around them, but they didn't change to match it. And it was because they were perfectly they were perfectly matched to what that was. But the fact is, all these things are changing around us all mm-hmm. the time. And so focusing at all on on so I guess when it comes to focusing on safety, you don't want to do it by looking at efficiency and optimization. You want to do it by looking at robustness to, or you're basically increasing your ability to, right, right, to agility, increasing your ability to handle the chaos Mm -hmm. of the world around you and to be predictive of what's going to happen. Not because you're, you can, but because if you know the many possible outcomes, then you can kind of be ready for all of them. Right. And, and design things so that they're ready for it, but always, always looking out for what that, for that next thing. Um, There's an interesting idea in, it wasn't in the anti-fragile book, but some other book I read, which was talking about this, this, this idea that security is essentially the, the death of people, the death of growth, generally mm-hmm. speaking, Yep. Uh, even though we always want it all the time. And one of the ideas was that uh, when you see a company move into a building that they have like perfectly architected based on everything they know, <laughs> right. that's actually usually the death knell for the company. Right. Um, and they give, they give a ton of examples in the book that's essentially say like, look at, look at what happens when people like you finally are big enough to fully architect the space that your entire company lives mm-hmm. in. Uh, but then weirdly, like the company can't adapt, adapt to anything. After that. Like it's a weird, <laughs> yeah. it's just like a so weird really that thing. Means, so well, that, cause you've invested now with so much of this building. Like uh, don't, you don't want to hire another team. Cause now you have to, where are you going to put them? Yeah, right. you know? Or you don't, you don't want to change your processes cause you finally tuned every yeah. square inch. So actually that means the best uh, workspace is just an open warehouse. Yeah. Because yeah. then you could just move things around as you well, need. Well, it's the Menlo keeping, Corporation. Menlo, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's keeping everything, mo- keeping everything modular. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to be over there now. And you just fucking move your desk there. Now you're over there. I mean, yeah. Think about how Valve does their desk thing, right? Like your desks are mobile. You just kind of roll around, get, put your stuff together, work with a new team, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. You know what we need? We need to actually set it up kind of like those Walmart, uh, uh, like little scooters. You know? Uh, yeah, but it's like, a but it's a desk. Right. <laughs> you just <laughs> drive it around. <laughs> you can <laughs> just go <laughs> Someone's like, "Hey, can you go over here like this?" And I just wheel over there. Yeah, but but I think that that <laughs> that attempt to to build permanence, I think, is yeah. just a guaranteed mistake because at some point, it's gonna it's not gonna work anymore. Because you should always assume that you're probably wrong about most things. Yeah. and as soon as you go, we and know you the only exact way to make a right. structure. But the thing is, as soon as you do something very precisely, then now it's not even a matter of being right or wrong. It's if one small thing changes, that yeah. thing is now wrong and it can't change. You know, it can't, it can't fit. And things, things will only change over time. So basically you want to have the fastest, loosest organization. Yeah. So you want, you basically left. you want, you the want the smallest, right. The smallest, most nimble organization mm-hmm. possible that you can just reorganize on a whim. That, that instead of focusing on min, maxing and optimization, you focus on delivery of brand new things. So basically right. you're, cause you're guaranteed to never extract as much as the big guys would from right. anything, but you're also much more likely to not die. Yep. Because we yeah. are not banks and will not get government bailouts. This is correct. Because the fact is, like, all the banks fucked up. Yep. Right? And the, the U.S. bank. Actually, all of them, pretty much. <laughs> well, many of them did collapse before felt, the bailouts happened. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then they, they were just fucked. Right. So some of them actually were allowed to get fucked. But, but the rest should have actually died because mm-hmm. that would have allowed new things to rise up, you know, behind yeah. them. Um, and, and that's actually normally how things work. Is normally when things become too just become to, you know, like, like banks are represented by like pillars and right. giant safes and all these <laughs> things. Right? They're sort of like, they're, so they're the epitome of a thing that's going to, that, that actually can't adapt. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, they all just fucking collapsed, right? Or should have anyway. So should we just get a semi-trailer? Yeah. Well, an, like RV. Sort an of RV. A, sort of a sort of breaking yeah. bad 
we'll have a an RV, which is where we make our games. Mm-hmm. We'll all put on our hazmat suits mm-hmm. before, we, before we're going. Yep. <laughs> and be, be ready to move to another country. But an RV, to, an be... RV where we've removed all the furniture, mm-hmm. you know. And actually, I mean, we, we have done this to some degree where, for example, like we all have laptops that we used to work off of. Yeah. Almost all of us. Yep. Uh, because of the fact that we're just like, you know, if people need to take it on a trip, if they need to go home for the weekend and they want to bring their work, um, whatever. And then at work, we just, you know, plug in our monitors and mm-hmm. stuff. So you should be able to adapt. And then also we say, because of all of our security and backup practices, if no matter where you are, if all of a sudden your laptop just flies out of your bag and falls in a river or something, somebody steals it, if it gets hit by a car, mm-hmm. uh, you, should be, you should be able to go, no problem. And you just move to literally any nearby computer and just start working again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So actually I use a desktop at work and a laptop at home, but it doesn't, the discrepancy doesn't matter. They are shells. They're just, yeah, they're just, I just put the same ghost in it each time. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, all right. So we have time for maybe like a question. So, all right, let's do it. Uh, so let's get to some questions. These questions come from podcast.bscotch.net. So if you'd like to get your question onto a future episode, head on over there and give us a quick, quick question. First question comes from anonymous past podcast. You said, that unfortunately, most GDC talks are about selling the indie dream. If you had your way, what three talks would act would you actually like to see at GDC? Uh. Note, I assume that one talk is about focus and not multitasking and all that stuff. <laughs> so pick three others. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that, that will be in our talk is just to get off of Twitter. So I'm going to put that in there. But I think... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of that assumed. They still talk. haven't taken uh, the talks that we keep pushing that come from sort of Adam's domain mm-hmm. of the studio which is the other third the third leg of the stool so to speak mm-hmm. um that makes us actually able to do stuff and it's all about uh the combination of automation and tools development and the scientific approach to games yep as a business and we pitched there were, th- there were three of them this year three or four i pitched three uh, all with a different angle and a different like particular mm-hmm. slice of this uh and they just don't seem to be interested yeah. yeah, which is weird because uh, when we think about as a, as a collective, when we're looking at our past history and sort of where we're going forward, the true the reality for us is that the, the thing that makes us we think successful and successfully able to again like be agile and build more and more stuff and roll our success forward is literally everything that Adam does. So it's sort of the difference maker. Yeah, all we no do all we do is make the games. Yeah, everyone's no one's interested in the the thing that actually makes the difference. But for I think, us. but I think yeah. this is because everybody is true, makes the games. But this is true mm-hmm. in the general sense because it's it's the game developers conference, right? That, that's that's who it targets. It's that it's it's in the name, right? It's people who are making the games. Um, but all the other all the other stuff, the marketing, the business, the mm-hmm. the team management, um, how to how to go from. And I think there's one of the talks that I think we're pretty sure we're not giving um, on converting a you know three person startup into a company that has employees and stuff, right? Yeah, that talk got. D- yeah, that one got nukes too. And, and these are the things that are actually by far the most important. Because I think to me, the assumption should be going to something like the Game Developers Conference is that people know how to make games. Because yep. if you don't, you just, what do you, what you're even not a there, game right? developer then, uh, right? <laughs> or, or at least you're you're on a team of people who know how to make games. Um, and if not, like, well, then, then you've got other problems and you can just need to go learn that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Game Developers Conference seems to me that it should be about how do you how do you be successful and survive as a, as a game developer? which then should be more focused on what do, what do careers look like? How does it, what does it look like to start a business? And I think, especially because as you were talking about with Uruguay uh, in, in the current market, it's becoming harder and harder for big companies to, to mm-hmm. stay alive. Uh, and small companies are now where all the stuff is, all the interesting stuff can be happening, except that 
nobody's talking about how the fuck you run a company yeah, right? Right, yeah. as a small team. People, small game developers, they, they think of themselves as game developers, not as businesses. Yeah. They don't, they don't say, I want to start up a small business. They say, that I want to, I right, want to be an indie developer. Right. Right. So I think that, that entire aspect of, of stuff is just largely, it, it's, it's just missing. Well, and if, and if, there, if it's, it's not, there, but it's usually it's so high level that yeah. it's not. So like one of the things we did at the, the talk we gave in, in Uruguay was actually put out a process, literally a process sort of checklist for how you would go about as an independent developer, as one person, what does it mean for you to actually email press? Because right. we get that all the time where they're like, oh yeah, you need to email press. You need to send a bunch of emails. How, how yeah. do I do that? I don't understand what that means. So we yep. took the five years of that we've done this in the past and then basically collapsed it into this, this bullet point list, which is like, literally it'll take you a day and a half. You just follow these instructions and mm -hmm. you will have emailed 150 press people. Yep. And there's nothing like that that ever happens sort of like in the, yeah, it's, it's from the stage of like, okay, I've got, I've got an idea. You know, I want to put a team together, right? What are the steps that I go through? Right. What are the, th what are the, just the things you need to worry about? Cause there's lots of just general advice out there, right? But there's not just, if you don't, here's a list of things to do. And if you don't, you are just going to be fucked. Yeah. Right. Uh, cause, cause we, we in our minds have that list as well. And I, but I've never seen anybody give it. Right. So I want to see a talk that's sort of a counter talk where you basically got, so for example, like VR has been just, everybody's just going crazy about VR, right? So much so to the point that the VR talks a couple of GDCs ago were like three quarters of the talks. Mm -hmm. And so they spun that out into a completely different conference, which is now VRDC. Mm -hmm. uh, because despite the fact that almost nobody owns a VR headset still, there's way more developers making VR games now than right. are making PC games, mm -hmm. um, which we even saw when we were in Uruguay, you know, we asking like, yep. how many people are making VR games? And over half the audience raises their hands, right? Um, What's your next question? Why? But why? Yeah. <laughs> and so, so what I would, what I want to see is some talks that are actually sort of debates. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Where like, like somebody right. says like, here's why you should make VR games and somebody else coming in saying, here's why you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And actually and like, let them fight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, because when we actually had this, we on see our, some countered perspectives. Here. Yeah, on our mm -hmm. panel, actually, this happened quite a bit because uh, it seems like we're a bunch of weirdos when it comes to our overall approach and how we think about the games. And so one of the one of the ideas was uh, as far as uh, advice to new developers about like how to go about finding their next game to make. And uh, one of the ideas put forth was, oh yeah, you know, you got to like find a game that you already really like, a, a genre you already really like. You know, make a game in that in that style, that sort of thing. Right, and then. Of course, if you listen to the podcast, you know that our primary way of making differentiated products actually pick stuff that we hate playing. So and you can then, identify the weaknesses. And then to make something that we actually like playing out of the thing that we hated originally. Which is because that means if we would like it, then maybe people who otherwise wouldn't have liked it right. would. And so it's sort of this so, but, but that, it also guarantees that you approach it with a critical eye. Right. Which right. is the most important thing. Because if you love a thing, thing, then you don't want to you know question. The interesting thing there though is that the that panel was actually really fun because we had there were multiple times where that was sort of what was happening, where, you know, uh, there'd be some, some initial thing or there, there are enough counterpoints actually on the panel, which is one of the first times I've been on a panel where everybody had enough experience to actually argue a little bit. And right. we, we weren't, Except we didn't get there was it. only one microphone. Yeah, so yeah. we could, we had to pass it around <laughs> yeah, so we, we couldn't actually like get into it. We didn't get to get time. into it, but there was, there was a, a few sort of back and forth where it was like, cool. Okay. You're seeing two different modes of thinking about these things. Yeah. Cause that's actually where people learn about stuff. And I think the problem with something like GDC is that the talks are proscriptive. Pre yes. Prescriptive. 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 Yeah. And the panels aren't, they're not, they're not structured in a debate capacity. It's more, it is more about you each share your little slice, but they're mainly the same slice. Yeah. At least from what I've seen. And in, in well, it's kind of, like, it's kind of, you know, everybody is going to GDC in hopes of, of learning how to do something and how mm -hmm. to, how to become accomplished with what they're, what they're working on. 
And so all the talks at GDC are, are chosen to then just tell you, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. When the reality is that if anybody believes that they know how to be successful at doing a thing, then they just are wrong. And mm-hmm. so if, if those are the people now who are giving all the talks and they basically now have a bunch of prescriptivists saying things that are wrong right. to a bunch of people who came there to hear prescriptivist perspectives, right. right? And you don't have the opportunity to instead learn the way that we learn, which is by by challenging each other on the way that we're thinking right. about stuff. Well, I mean, I mean the, in the, there's been two talks now at GDC, which was basically everything we said was wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. I think it happened last year and the moment before. Um, but I think it's, it's even interesting as, a, you know, we're very anti- Which I should say, I also submitted a talk last year called- Everything You Know Is Wrong. Everything You Know Is Wrong. Yeah. Which but did not get So or actually it was called everyone is wrong about everything all, all of, the, of time. the time. <laughs> <laughs> that well, all of the time was the subtitle. I thought it was great. Maybe it was wrong about everything, but colon all of the time. Yep. But my favorite thing though here is that uh, so even when it comes to when we how we talk about free to play, like we don't really particularly like free to play. I had a really great discussion with one of the devs at in in Uruguay who's working on their they have this product called Starlet Adventures. And Starlet is sort of the the IP. And his whole approach is like, they just want to build an IP that everybody loves and recognizes like Mario. Right. Yep. And so they build these and they're like wonderful th- little 3d models sort of Mario esque things, uh, very iconic characters. But their approach then is in order to do that, he's like, you know, the reason why you would pay $10 for a super Mario game on mobile is because it's Mario. That's the only reason why. Right. Mm-hmm. So their whole goal is like, they're sort of doing this almost as uh, this free to play strategy to start with. And it's just like you buy level packs or whatever. It's not, it's not super gross stuff that we've talked about, but just sort of using it as a way to just create a huge brand awareness for this thing. And we had a really good discussion about sort of the, the, the balance or the pros and cons of taking that down a free to play route versus a premium route and sort of what we're doing, which is the same idea, having this sort of this end goal of having this IP that spans multiple pieces of media, but some of the limitations that we actually have because we're doing premium first, as opposed to say doing free to play. And it was a really good chat and made me think like, okay, for some of our future games, it would be fun to some of these smaller games, try something like a free game that has a subscription in it or a free game where you buy, you know, something in it, but it doesn't, doesn't cross that line into the gross stuff or like hitting people in the face with ads all the time. I mean, we, so there's ways to do it is the thing that, that yeah. do feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it has the, some benefits. The reason that we kind of landed on the just premium pay up front is because we, so we tried a bunch of different models with that same idea though, right? Basically saying, not necessarily building awareness of an IP, but building an awareness of the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did the, like buying consumables with Quadrupus Rampage, which we did kind of bad at. Yeah, uh, really bad at it. We did the same thing with okay. Talfight, didn't go. Uh, and then Roid Rage and Flop Rocket are both sort of pay for full game unlocks and that tanked our review scores super hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the case of all four of those games, the uninstall rate right out of the gate is like 40% or That's something like, like that. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was thinking of the people who actually keep the game. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's like, but that's, uh, that's like of the people who keep the game, it's yeah. But yeah, also but, but this is what I think is interesting about it is is that there's it's actually hard to know just because you have huge download numbers uh, and even huge numbers of players on any given day. It's hard to know how many of those players actually you actually are building IP awareness well, yeah. with. And we've had this conversation a lot too because if you even if you bring in IP awareness for you know, 10 million players in your free-to-play game. Mm-hmm. What fraction of those people are going to go buy a premium game from you? Right. We, almost you zero. Almost zero percent. Yeah. Well, no, we do know almost zero well, percent. Uh, <laughs> almost none of them are going to do yeah. it. So, because, and this is, the, this is the discussion we've had a lot too, because, you know, we're part of our strategy is to use systems like Bscotch ID to actually get, get our players on a newsletter so that we can actually talk to them and say, hey, we launched a new game and so on. 
we had this question all the time of like, well, if we make the game this game cheaper and we put out a free game, mm-hmm. then we're going to get more people into that system. And it, of course, that's true, except that those are people who don't buy stuff from us. Right. So then, and and who maybe aren't as engaged. Yeah. With the right. game because they did they. When people get free games, they tend they don't tend to make active decisions about getting them. They just press the you know the get button. They're just right, like, right, I'll right, have right, this. Right. Um, but, but I think but there's there's still I think interesting rich discussion to be had about those things. Absolutely, right? and yeah. and also like fun experiments that if we take more of the more of that that uh, the rambunctious model of like all right let's argue about some stuff and then just build a game just, just make it happens right yeah. see what happens because we did that yeah. with Flop Rocket. Yeah, we're like we could launch this as a premium, but. Maybe a like sort of the trial with the unlock thing would be a good thing. So we just did it. Yep. Uh, and it, it, it things like it did make us some money at the time, which was nice. But overall, like that whole experience was pretty negative in terms of like <laughs> yeah. what it, what it could have been probably as a premium game was probably better than what it, what happened with the yeah. free play. Yeah. But there's other ways we sold that for two or three bucks. It would have been. I mean, that's the the final unlock was three bucks anyways. Right. But that's assuming it still would have been featured if it was a premium game. Well, here's here I think is the problem. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Which is that? So then I just finished reading. Too many, too many statistical uh, anomalies. Just finished reading a book called I think it's like on Ogilvy on on advertising, and Ogilvy is one of the like big advertising guys from from back in the day who sort of pioneered a bunch of stuff in the industry. And he has this great. It's a very short book, and he has this little piece at the beginning which basically says, uh, "I'm sorry that this is going to sound dogmatic." in terms of how you need to go about this. We are, we are here with a very short period of time and brevity makes things dogmatic. Yeah. So what that means when you, when you listen to a talk or even the podcasts or just anything that people say is that if they have to cut it down to make sure you can understand what the idea is, then of course you don't have any room for nuance, right? There's no yeah. like, mm-hmm. well, you could also maybe try this or try to, like there's none of that happening. And so hey, we even talk about this internally about how, you know, we're constantly changing our path and changing our minds about how things work. And it kind of sucks. Like the nice thing about the podcast is we get to give you updates weekly about this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And debate things live on air. Yeah. But when it comes to, if we go to give a talk, like that's a frozen moment in time mm-hmm. where it's like all of our stuff leading up to that. Here's what we think's happening. Well, and the people asking you to give the talk aren't asking you to provide the nuance either. They just, they want you to go tell people Correct. how to think. Yeah. Which is fine. I think mm-hmm. it's fine. It's totally fine. It's but a it's a starting point. It's a great starting point. And yeah. I think if it's also the end point, which it, it may be for some people or some organizations, yeah. actually, um, organizations that don't support that. Then, then you end up in a place where, again, you're you're running into a sort of calcified structure yeah. that can't adapt. Well, I think it's it's just too easy for people to have never been aware that when they go see a talk, that it is that it is a simplification of a of a a person's ideas at a particular moment in time, mm-hmm. right? Uh, all of the nuance, uh, like everything, is taken out so that it can be presented. Yeah, there's there's nothing that could be said to be simply true about it. Right? There's degrees of accuracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I think the problem is that, that in general, people just don't think about things in that way. So they, they think if they're going to go hear a talk that this is now an expert because that person was selected. Mm-hmm. If the talk is presented really well, then they're going to think, wow, this is, this is, this is all gospel truth. Right. And, they, and they're going to leave just not, not now having more stuff to think about, um, but now just having a new set of rules that they're going to go mm-hmm. follow. Well, a good one from actually from reading this book was that, you know, I just read that persuasive advertising book, which is this sort of tome of, advertising studies and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Very excited about it. And one of the main statistics they use in there is recall rate. So if you do a, if you do an advertisement that is like this versus like this, uh, what, which one has a higher recall rate? That's sort of like one of the base things. And in this book, he has, he talks about this a little bit and then he says, I don't like that statistic because we found recall rate to be uncoupled from people's actual brand preference changes. Right. I mean, just because you can remember an ad really well doesn't necessarily mean that it actually changed your mind about using the product. Right. And so he's like, that statistic. That's true. Like, I've literally never f- forgotten about Coca-Cola because I can't. Yeah. But I also you know, I never literally buy never buy Coca-Cola. Right. <laughs> so, 
so and I was like, oh shit, because of course that whole book that's like yeah. it's one of the Actually, fundamental statistics. Right. In fact, now I just I always know that a thing that I don't want is really yeah. what it is done. Every time you see it, everywhere you go, there's a code yeah. going. You're like, no, still yeah. no. Yep, still not interested. <laughs> even that that little twist, like you can't necessarily you know say you put a whole book together. Right. right. That's like the underpinning piece, and someone's like, well, you know, that doesn't really matter. Yeah. It's like shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which brings us back full circle. This whole thing, like most of this stuff, doesn't matter that. Much. Like you, we just got to do what seems like a good idea. Pick a thing. Pick a thing and do it and real go well. Do it and try to just focus on doing things that have far more upsides than downsides. Uh, with the and just and avoid like the plague. Anything that can nuke what mm-hmm. we're doing. Anything that'll just stop us cold. Just, so, just for example, if you're a fire dancer, yep. Right. First, it, don't be right because you can catch on fire and die. Yeah, but that, also, that takes you right out. But also, it looks super badass. It does look very cool. So if you're a fire dancer, people are less interested in what color of pants you're wearing, you know, while you're doing your fire dance. They're more interested in the fact that, holy shit, you're running around with fire on your face. Or yep. I don't actually know how this works. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> you dance with fire on your but face. But you dance with fire, maybe you're on fire mm-hmm. uh, or something. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's the part that attracts the crowd, not your not the color of your pants. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. right. So don't don't so. worry about min maxing. Just set yourself on fire, <laughs> and then go. Just go do your thing. I think that's the lesson. <laughs> Simplified. <laughs> Nothing was lost. Uh-huh. Yep. No yep. need for nuance. Oops. Right. All right. So that's all the time we have. Uh, we'd like to thank our studio wrangler Monique and our producer Fat Bard for putting this episode together, and the Bees Gotch Dev team for having our backs while we record this podcast. Also, special thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord and forums running. If you'd like to get more involved in the B-Scotch community, you can head on over to our Discord server, which is at discord.gg slash bscotch. Come say hey. And if you'd like to adorn your your bod with butterscotch... <laughs> Sam gave me some eyebrows. <laughs> if you'd like to adorn your bod with butterscotch merch, you can check out our shop, which is over at shop.bscotch.net. Or if you'd like to adorn our bods with your merch, we have a mailbox. Uh, so if you'd like to send us something, anything at all, as long as it's legal and sensible to send in the mail, mm-hmm. uh, you can do that. <laughs> I got the disclaimer in there for you, Adam. Nice. Appreciate uh, it. Which you can head on over to mailbox.bscotch.net and uh, we get alerts when stuff comes in. So we will know. We will know that it has arrived. Mm-hmm. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.